All right. Good morning. As my as my children are being negotiated with at the front, high stakes negotiations. They know when to pick the times, don't they? It's good to be here this morning and to share with you from God's word. Would you bow with me once more? Let's ask his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come under your word, I pray that you would speak to each one of us through it, and I ask for myself that you would grant me the boldness to speak this word that you have laid on my heart clearly, and may we receive it as from you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I would like to begin by introducing you to a man named Humam Khalil Balawi. This is a picture of him that you can see behind me this morning. Now, Balawi is actually a doctor, a mild-mannered Jordanian doctor who worked primarily with treating Palestinian refugees in the nation of Jordan. However, this young physician began to listen to the jihadist rhetoric of Islamic imams preaching things like death to the infidels. And as the term has become quite common, through this process he was radicalized and began to embrace this violent ideology. He soon began posting in jihadist blogs online, which caught the attention of the Jordanian spy agency. They soon arrested him in 2009. And according to the CIA's report, Balawi seemed to crack after three days of relatively mild interrogation. And so the Jordanians calculated that they could flip Balawi and use him as a double agent to infiltrate the Al-Qaeda terrorist network led by Osama bin Laden. And so after a short trial period, they decided that they were going to send Balawi to go and work with the CIA in Pakistan. They knew that sending this young doctor who didn't have any formal field training was a gamble, a risk. However, they decided that it was worth the risk in the attempts to try to locate bin Laden. And so on the 30th of December 2009, Balawi was received at the CIA base near coast Afghanistan. His impending arrival had been briefed all the way up to then-President Barack Obama. And the CIA officers there had been instructed to greet him as a welcomed, high-value guest and to basically roll out the red carpet for him. And so part of this rolling out the red carpet for him was the CIA field agents skipped their regular stringent security checks. They didn't put him through the security cordon that they normally would have, and they allowed him inside the base. Now, Balawi had promised them a way to infiltrate Al-Qaeda, a way to finally get the elusive bin Laden. But there was just one problem. It was all a deception. For almost immediately upon entering the CIA base, Balawi detonated a hidden suicide vest he was wearing. The tremendous blast of high explosives killed seven CIA officers, two other personnel along with himself. It was the single most deadly strike against the CIA in 25 years. And you can see the aftermath of that devastating explosion. The CIA's following up uh, investigation into the affair concluded in its final analysis, that they had compromised their normally high security standards 
because they were so desperate and intent on finding Osama bin Laden. Now, spiritually speaking, I would like to draw a parallel for us this morning. A very similar thing can happen to a church or entire church conferences when they too let down their biblical standards so as not to offend the culture in the pursuit of being seen as culturally relevant and sensitive. The underlying thought being that they may more easily win people to the Lord if they lower their biblical standards, roll out the red carpet, if you will. But once biblical standards are compromised and dropped and deception is allowed within the gates, so to speak, through the door and to take root inside the church, the results can be equally devastating to the spiritual life and witness of a church. And so today we're going to look at two examples where this has happened. One in the first century church and the second in the 21st century church. Now, the first church that we're going to look at is from our text this morning, from Revelation chapter 2 and verses 12 to 17. Now, here on the map, you can see the rough location of where this letter was written to. Right up here, we have Pergamum. These here are the, the seven churches of Revelation. If you're familiar with this uh, section of Revelation, the first two chapters are primarily addressed to the seven churches. And we are going to be looking at the message written to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. And in case you're wondering, the location of those cities is in modern-day Turkey. Now, the Apostle John, who is, of course, the author of the book of Revelation, he receives directly from the Lord Jesus seven specific messages to these seven churches located in what was then the Roman province of Asia Minor. This was during the period where the Roman Emperor Nero had already decided that it was a, a very good way to unite the Roman Empire would be by forcing everyone to worship him as a god. Why not? Have a god complex. I think that's where it came from. And uh, Nero's like, we're going to unite everyone around me because I am so amazing. I'm going to force everyone in the empire to worship me. Now, for the majority of the Roman populace, it was a polytheistic population. Polytheistic meaning they worshipped many gods. So for them, adding Caesar to the list of gods they had to worship was no big deal. However, the problem was for the new Christians who believed that there is only one true God and only one God who is worthy of our worship. To worship any other lesser God or, or man was to essentially blaspheme the Lord God. It was, the, it was the worst possible thing you could do, breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. And so this was something those early Christians simply could not do, was to worship the emperor. And so for the Christians, the choice was simple. Nero wasn't going to say, oh, you don't want to worship me? No big deal. Of course not. His choice for them was clear. Either worship me or refuse and die. No pressure, right? So into that context, the Lord Jesus introduces himself to the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, this way. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the double-edged sword. 
So here we see something very pointed, if you will. No pun intended. Actually, it was. I apologize. I should have lied in the sermon. Jesus' words are a double-edged sword. This is a direct link to earlier in the letter, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, where John describes in his vision of Jesus that out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. So he sees Jesus and this sword, sharp, double-edged, is coming out of his mouth. And this, of course, represents the words of Jesus, which are the truth. Hebrews 4, verse 12, expands on this theme further. Our call to worship says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So what Jesus is saying in his introduction to the church at Pergamum is that he was thrusting that double-edged sword of truth right down into their very souls, right down into their very hearts, judging the thoughts and attitudes therein. And then the question, if Jesus decides to thrust that double-edged sword of truth to penetrate right down to our our very nitty-gritty bottom-of-the-barrel thoughts, actions, motives, beliefs, who can hide from that? Who, Who can say, I don't want that, I don't desire that? Who can hide from it? Well, the very next verse tells us, verse 13 in Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so they couldn't hide from God. They couldn't hide from his scrutiny. They couldn't hide from that double-edged sword of truth. And we can't either. We can't hide from it. And one day we will have to give an account to the one who wields that sword. For remember... Christ's word is just as living and active today as it was then. It doesn't have an expiration date. The the power of the words does not diminish over time. They are just as potent, just as real, just as powerful today as they were then. Therefore, when we come under this word today, we sit under it, we listen to it, we must take it and receive it as seriously as the church at Pergamum. Let's remember that as we move forward this morning. Jesus wields the double-edged sword of truth. Secondly, we see here, as Jesus acknowledges where they live, the church of Pergamum lived in a satanically corrupted city and culture. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, what does Christ mean by saying that Pergamum was where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives? What did he mean by that? Well, we have already learned of the forced practice of emperor worship, and the very first temple that was erected to honor a living emperor was built in, you guessed it, Pergamum. Pergamum was at the very center of the emperor-worshipping cult. And so as a result, the pressure to conform to emperor worship was significantly higher in this city than elsewhere in the region, and especially in the far-flung corners of the empire. So if you lived in, in Pergamum, the option of just 
Keeping your beliefs in Christ to yourself and avoiding emperor worship was simply not an option. The scrutiny was too intense being at the very center of this emperor-worshipping cult. In addition to that, the city also boasted at least four other temples to the pagan Greek gods. The grandest of these was the altar to Zeus, the so-called head of the gods located on a hill overlooking the city. Now, this here is a modern-day reconstruction of the altar to Zeus, which is located in Berlin. It's to scale uh, a replica of what stood in the city of ancient Pergamum. And so, the dimensions of this, what what I could find, is that it's roughly 35 meters square. So it is it is deep. You can't really get the scope of that in the picture, but it's it's very wide, 35 meters, and also 35 meters deep. And from the floor to the very top, it's four stories tall. So it's significant. And now this stood on a hilltop overlooking the city of Pergamum. So just imagine, everywhere you went, you were under the shadow of this. Everywhere you looked in the city, you could see the altar to Zeus dominating the landscape. And now, we don't know for certain if Jesus was referring specifically to this altar as Satan's throne. But nonetheless, it stood as a powerful symbol that Satan's power and influence ruled over that city. So now just imagine if you are a newly converted Christian living in the city of Pergamum, and you live in the shadow of that, this symbol of Satan's power, and you live in the shadow of other symbols of Satan's power. They're everywhere. This just dominates the landscape. The entire Christian, or pardon me, the entire culture around them is anti-Christ in its very nature, and therefore it's anti-Christian at every turn. Everything they bump into is contrary to Christ. And so in this city, in this culture, Jesus says, where Satan lives, would they be able to count the cost and stand firm in the face of that type of pressure? Or would they seek safety in compromise? Well, as we see, they did both. One man refused to compromise and paid the ultimate price. Jesus said, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. Now, the Greek phrase here for remaining true to my name carries the idea of someone seizing the name of Jesus and clinging to it like a drowning man would cling to a life preserver. So just imagine you're drowning. Someone throws you a life preserver and you cling to it for your very life. That's how many of the believers in Pergamum were clinging to the name of Jesus. They would not trade his precious name for any emperor, for any pagan deity. They refused to budge on this. And one of the men who stood apart as an example of this was a man named Antipas. Jesus calls him my faithful witness. So who was Antipas? Well, Scripture doesn't provide more details on him than what is written here. However, church tradition has it that after refusing to worship Caesar, Antipas was finally roasted alive inside a brazen bull as an offering to the gods. What a powerful testimony to the city, to the Roman Empire, 
to the emperor himself, and even to Satan, that there would be those who would not compromise with the satanic culture surrounding them, but would be willing to cling to the name of Jesus, cling to the word of truth, even if it meant death. Would we have that same kind of conviction? Would we have that same kind of courage that Antipas had? Be willing to count the cost and cling to the name of Jesus, even if it cost us our very lives. Oh, that we would, my friends. That the testimony of Antipas would be our testimony as well. And so now, while Antipas and some others held firm, did not deny Jesus' name, did not compromise on the truth, another deception insidiously crept its way inside the church of Pergamum. And this is the compromise of Balaam. The compromise of Balaam. Verse 14. Jesus continues, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some, some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, one of Satan's repeated tactics, he does this over and over again, we can see this throughout history, is that when he can't defeat someone or he can't defeat a church by attacks from the outside with direct assault, he will switch tactics to internal deception, using deceit to corrupt from within. And that is exactly what the teaching of Balaam represents, internal deception. And you can read all about the prophet Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. He is, of course, most famous for having his donkey speak to him because there was a, an angel on the road about to strike him dead. The donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't. The donkey speaks to him. Well, you know the story. He's most famous for that. However, Balaam, the reason God wanted to stop him on the road that day was because a pagan king, the king of Moab named Balak, wanted to curse the Israelites who were traveling through his area led by Moses. And so he hires Balaam the prophet to come and curse the nation. He wants to, he wants to get a legit prophet of God to come and curse the nation. And Balaam's willing to do this for a prophet. And so he goes, and when he wants to speak the words of cursing over Israel, every time he opens his mouth to prophesy, words of blessing come out instead. Three times he blesses Israel. Well, this, of course, infuriated King Balak. And so finally, in order to appease him, Balaam gives him the advice to pay beautiful women from Moab and Midian to flaunt themselves before the young men of Israel and to tempt them into committing sexual sin with them. And since, of course, these women were worshippers of Baal and other pagan gods, they then lured them into committing sexual sin with them and then come along with me and let's go worship Baal together. Cultic orgies, you name it. The depravity knew no limits once these young men turned their heads towards the beautiful women of Moab and Midian. And so here we see this perfect example that when an outward attack did not work, following Balaam's deceptive advice, the king of Moab succeeded in introducing sexual sin and idol worship into the nation of Israel, corrupting them from within. And if you read the story, there was a severe consequence of judgment that came in the aftermath of this from the Lord. 
And so this is the backdrop of what Jesus is referring to when he says, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And so clearly for many of the fledgling Christians in Pergamum, there was some serious sexual immorality that they were participating in. And it's hardly a shock. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us since, the, the, remember, that culture is corrupt. Most of Pergamum's pagan temples would employ prostitutes for the very purpose of sexual orgies and self-gratification of all types and stripes. In fact, the practice of participating in these sexual indulgences and perversions of every type was not an outlier in that society or that culture. It was normal. It was as normal for the people of Pergamum to go and do that as it is for us today to come to church and sing and listen to a sermon. It's that kind of normal. It's that kind of accepted. So it's hardly a shock that in that culture, some of these early Christians are struggling with the exact same things. They're compromising, indulging in the sexual sins all around them. And so those Balaamites didn't bat an eyelash at singing for Jesus on Sunday and then going to the temple prostitute on Monday. But in doing so, they were holding to Jesus' name outwardly, but inwardly, they were compromising on living out his truth. It was some 50 years ago now, 50 years ago, that Pastor Vance Havner said this about the Western Church. There have never been more Balaamites in our churches than now. We call them worldly Christians. He said that 50 years ago, my friends. To that I would add, there have never been more Balaamite churches than now. Because as we look around our nation of Canada, as we look around our province of Manitoba today, we see whole churches and even church conferences allowing the deceptive teaching of Balaam and compromising with sexual sins right inside their doors. So what specific deception has been allowed inside many churches today? Well, let me tell you a recent story. It was a week and a half ago that I received a phone call at my church office from an elderly lady in a small Manitoba town. She had heard one of my sermons on the radio a little while ago, and she, she wanted to talk with me about it. This happens from time to time. And though she couldn't remember the sermon title, which is also typical, or even the text, something that I'd said in the sermon had jumped out to her, and it wasn't even one of my main points, but I had said something that made her ears perk up, and this is what I had said. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That's what I'd said. That's it. That's what had perked her ears up. Now, if you're wondering why that simple statement had caught her attention enough to call me about it, to talk about it, well, so was I. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you getting at here? And I soon found out. She asked me a rather loaded question. So what is your stance on gay marriage? Okay, that's where you're going with this. And my response was, one sentence, I stand with the Bible. And she laughed. Well, what do you mean by standing with the Bible? And so I went on to say what I meant by standing with the Bible. God's word is clear on this subject. Homosexuality is a sin. Marriage is designed by God to be between one man and one woman. And so he cannot bless something that is against his design. And there was a pause on the other end. And then she replied, 
While it's good to know that there's still a Mennonite pastor out there who is holding to the Bible on this. Those words rattled me. It's good to know there's still a Mennonite pastor out there who is holding to the Bible on this. And she went on to explain her story. Her husband had been a pastor in a small Mennonite conference church in Alberta. And this was during the lengthy and divisive period of time, the nationwide process, where the Mennonite Church Conference of Canada was deciding about whether or not to permit and bless gay marriage within the church. And this finally resulted in the Being a Faithful Church Task Force presenting this resolution in 2016. We call upon our family of Christ to respectfully acknowledge that there are those among us, congregations and individuals, whose careful study of scripture and prayerful journey of discernment led them to a different understanding on committed same-sex relationships than is commonly understood in scripture. We recommend that we create space, leave room within our body to test alternative understandings from that of the larger body to see if they are a prophetic nudging of the Spirit of God. Now to boil this down to you brass tacks is this resolution condoned it and opened the door for individual Mennonite churches within the conference to fully embrace gay marriage, officiating it, you name it, right within the church, and affirming the entire LGBTQ lifestyle, the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, and this is happening. I was going to give you an example of one church this is happening, but I'm skipping it because there are too many examples. They are celebrating within the church, blessing it, saying you can be a pastor, you can get married, you can have communion, you can be a church member and be a fully active practicing out there in you know, the homosexual lifestyle. And so... This lady, she's, she's sick, she's sharing her story with me. And I, of course, eventually explained to her that because we are an independent Mennonite church and we don't have any formal ties to the Mennonite conference, we have been largely insulated as a congregation from this debate. And yet, as we've been insulated, the debate has raged all around us in our sister churches that bear the same name as us. And that includes my wife's hometown church in Alberta, the little town of Rosemary. They had to leave the conference over this issue, along with dozens and dozens of more congregations nationwide. Other churches who chose to remain in the conference but still hold to what the Bible says about homosexuality are caught now in a position of not being able to speak up on the issue for fear of causing more division with those who are embracing it. And now, of course, I don't think any of this is news to you. It's certainly not news to me. But for some reason, her call, it just rattled me. And it rattled me because the very conference that we share the Mennonite name with has compromised so far on this issue that it is now all but assumed that we, as an individual congregation, will have compromised as well. So much so that to simply hear a Mennonite pastor say marriage is between one man and one woman for life catches someone's attention. It troubles me then that as a minister of the gospel of Christ, I have to even explain to other Christians why I stand on the clear teaching of God's word that marriage is between one man and one woman. And I just ask the question, how is it that the church has slid so far from the truth? 
How has this deception taken such a hold? Well, it's the same way that the church of Pergamum did. Outwardly, they held firm to Jesus' name, and the Mennonite church is. But inwardly, there is compromise happening with the deception of Balaam. Ignoring the word of truth, allowing their sexual appetites and desires and desire to conform and blend in with the culture around them, they're allowing these things to undermine God's word. And then even trying to blend the two together as though they're compatible, as though the one doesn't contradict the other, as though what God calls sin is actually good and to be celebrated. And so I ask the question, what does God think of all of this? What does God think? Well, I believe, my friends, the alarm bells are ringing. The alarm bells are ringing. It's past time we wake up and listen to God's word before it's too late. These words are just as powerful and relevant for us today as they were for the church in Corinth to whom they were addressed 2,000 years ago. The Apostle Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor homosexuals, nor thieves nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, my friends, listen. All sin bars us from heaven. All lying, all cheating, all stealing, all gossip, and all sexual sin, which includes homosexuality, as listed here. All sin. And so we can't stand apart and say, well, it's only they who are sinning. No, we're all sinners, my friends. And there's only one solution for our sin problem, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. We have all sinned, so we all need to be washed clean. But we cannot, listen, we cannot go to the cross and celebrate sin at the same time. The cross is where sin goes to die. The cross is where sin goes to die, to be crucified. And it's where repentant sinners go, including yours truly. It's where we go to surrender our fleshly lusts. It's where we go to surrender those desires which wage war against our soul, those things which are in the corrupted flesh. It's where we go to lay those down and find grace and forgiveness and cleansing and salvation. But we cannot, we cannot go to the cross and hold on to our favorite sin. And we cannot go to the cross and hold on to our favorite sin and tell Jesus, it's not a sin. It's not a sin because, because I desire it. It's not a sin because my corrupted heart wants to reinterpret God's word to fit with what I want. Because I want it to fit with what culture says. We cannot do that, my friends. God simply won't allow it. We will all stand before him and give an account one day. And though we may seem to be able to do this for a season, my friends, it will not endure it will not stand. God won't allow it. And so, to my sister churches within the Mennonite Conference of Canada, and to all others who are compromising with this deception, 
I simply share with you the words of Christ. The words he gave to the church of Pergamum in Revelation 2.16. Repent. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Jesus' single word to his church. His church. Not our church. It belongs to him. His single word is repent. Come back to me. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will restore you. But you must repent. You must call sin what I call sin. You cannot hold on to it. And now the truth is this, my friends. When it comes to compromising with the world, we likely all have some repenting to do. So may we humble ourselves before our almighty God so that we may receive mercy and grace that he may cleanse us and lift us up to him, his spotless bride. May we hold fast to the double-edged sword of truth May we be like Antipas and hold firm, unflinching and uncompromising, counting the cost, even if that means our very lives. For Christ who gave his life for us is worthy of our lives. For his sake and his glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. And we humble ourselves before your word. For it is truly sharp. And Lord, when it cuts, it cuts deep. And we felt it this morning. But that's your work. And we thank you that when you do so, it's not with judgment in mind, but mercy. It's for mercy's sake that you do this, Lord. It's in your mercy that you let us feel the conviction and the weight of our sin so that we may throw ourselves upon your mercy at the foot of the cross and lay ourselves down before you in complete humility to say, Lord, it's your way, not my own. It's your life, and I lay myself down, and all of my sinful and fleshly desires, I lay them down at the foot of the cross. And Lord, I pray this special measure of grace and mercy for those who do struggle specifically in this area of same-sex attraction. Lord, there are those who struggle, just as there are those who struggle with lying and cheating and stealing, struggle with sins of adultery and fornication, struggle with sins of gossip, Lord, we all struggle. And so I pray for those who struggle specifically in this area, may they hear your truth, that to lay down their desires for you is the greatest thing they could do, and that they will find that in laying, laying themselves down, they will find freedom in you and grace to persevere and move forward. And Lord Jesus, I pray for us as a church that we will stand firm. I pray, Lord, for those of our sister churches who are compromising in this area. Lord, bring conviction that can only come from sitting under your word, which is truth. And even if it hurts, that double-edged sword, I pray, Lord, that they would come back to you, that they would repent just as you invited the church of Pergamum to do. For in you we will find cleansing, we will find and receive that manna from heaven, the bread of life, which restores our souls. 
And so we pray, Lord, for this. We thank you for your word. We receive it as from you today. In Jesus' name.